Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Do a quick internet search for trans athletes, and you're faced with a whole range of headlines. Here's a sample. How can we end the current impasse over transgender athletes? Transgender inclusion, fairness and safety often cannot coexist, says Major Review. New guidance for trans athletes in UK sport slammed as extremely harmful. Sport is for everyone. Those headlines get particularly contentious when a high-profile women's sporting event is being played out. New Zealand weightlifter Laurel Hubbard will become the first transgender athlete at the Olympic Games. But her selection is controversial as she competed at an elite level as a man before transitioning seven years ago. Despite the headlines and the controversy, we still don't have a clear consensus about how trans athletes should be included in British sport. To add difficulty, different sports have different regulations. Recently, the Sports Council's Equality Group released a major review into the inclusion of trans athletes, suggesting that some sports should even create entirely separate categories for trans women in the name of competitive fairness and safety. I think people have this attitude that any old average man could just walk into a high-level women's team and be one of the best players, and it's just not the case. To understand the story, the debate, and some of the possible ways forward, today we hear directly from those most affected by the confusing system, trans athletes. You're listening to Stories of Our Times, from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Callum MacDonald. Today, testosterone in women's sport. What makes an athlete? I'm a journalist at TalkSport. I predominantly produce and write and present bulletins for TalkSport. Over the years, as a sports journalist, Amelia Cox has covered countless stories involving trans athletes. Trans is a term that's used to describe someone whose gender is not the same as the sex they were assigned at birth. For context, cisgender is the opposite. It describes someone whose gender does match the one that they were assigned at birth. Supporters call her selection a breakthrough for the transgender community. It's also reignited a debate with critics who say it's unfair for an athlete who used to compete with men to participate in women's sports. 
trying to defend women's rights from a grotesquely unfair situation where people born to male biological bodies who have an obvious superior strength and power are now being able to simply say I'm female and compete against women born to female bodies. So, do transgender athletes have an unfair advantage? I do unfortunately think that sometimes trans voices are left out of the conversation. It was for that reason that Amelia carried out a series of interviews to highlight the experiences of trans athletes in British sport. One of the people she interviewed was Verity Smith. I knew I was different. There wasn't the language when I was younger and I just, I kept quiet. Verity is a trans man. His assigned gender at birth was female. Verity is also a wheelchair rugby player. He also competes in rugby as an openly transgender man. It's only by making progress over years that he's been able to bond his gender identity with the enjoyment of the sport he loves. There were so many nights that I sat and cried myself to sleep because I, I, I so wanted to tell people, I wanted to play rugby as myself, I wanted to live my life and I've lost a massive chunk of that just so I could play sport. Verity's love affair with rugby started early, back when the whole world still considered him a girl. He started rugby um, at the age of 11. His grandparents took him to his first session. It was amazing just seeing everybody running around. And I still speak to the person that taught me how to play rugby, a lady called Jackie Edhouse. Um, and she just walked over to me and put her arms around me and took me off. And that was tw 28, 29 years ago. Verity lost his parents at a young age. I was struggling with things at school. I was struggling with my sexuality. Couldn't talk to anyone about my gender. Didn't have any language about it back then. Didn't know anything. Rugby has been the one constant that I've had for my whole life. And to me, it just it's, it's meant the world for me. And I don't think I'd be here now if I didn't have it. And as he continued to explore his gender identity, it came into conflict with his passion for rugby. Unfortunately, as I got older, I was told that if I came out about my gender, then I'd be kicked out of the, the league. But shortly after coming out as trans, the team played a game in Hull. Someone on the opposing team pinned Verity down and spat blood into his mouth. The story was sold to the newspapers. And my team, who I was playing for at the time, they decided to stand by me. The whole team stood up for me on the pitch. These were young girls at the time. They didn't really have the language. They didn't even know necessarily what a transgender person is. But they just knew that Verity was their teammate. I was able to get signed off by England Rugby Union to carry on playing um, for the women's team for Union and the same for Rugby League as well. So I was still able to play my sport at that time. And then unfortunately I had an accident, which is when I moved over to the wheelchair team. Things are starting to change, but we're still seeing issues for trans people in sport, hoping that things will change because I don't want any other young trans or gender diverse person to have to hide themselves to play sport like I did and lose a massive chunk of your life just because you want to be able to play sport the same as everybody else. Verity isn't the only trans athlete who almost left the sport they love because they didn't feel like there was a place for them there. Amelia also spoke to a football player, Sammy Walker. Yes, yeah, so Sammy Walker is a footballer in the Women's National League in the third tier of women's football. She's a trans woman. She's been playing football for as long as she can walk. My family were all football mad, so I think it was kind of inevitable that I would get into the sport. I just loved it. I loved the competitiveness. I loved the exercise. But as Sammy got older, her love for football was interrupted. I just couldn't see a, a place for me in the game. As a trans woman, I just felt that, you know, the football wasn't ready for, for someone like me. And so I kind of walked away from the game, didn't play for a decade or so. 
Eventually, after transitioning, she found her way back to football. She's openly trans. She's the highest ranking trans woman in football. So she's also, you know, a big part of the community and, and advocating for them. Even though Sammy now plays football, there are still layers of complexity involved in playing sport. The process isn't just a case of you wake up one morning and go, oh, I'm a woman, so I'm going to go and play women's sports. You know, it's just not the case. Basically, any trans person, like Sammy, who wants to play football can do so if they get clearance from the Football Association. Now, getting clearance mostly depends on hormone levels. To play on the women's team, your testosterone levels need to fall within a certain range. And once you get that initial sign-off, that doesn't necessarily mean that's it, signed, sealed and delivered. It's not just like you get the sign-off and then you can just play. It's something that's continually monitored. The impact of testosterone on performance is more complex as well than a high or low number. And in order to keep your testosterone within the acceptable range, you need access to medical care. That process for actually getting treatment as a trans person and getting that trans health care is so elongated. So there's this kind of rhetoric that people can just pretend and then switch back and win all the medals, earn a small fortune and go back to living as male. And it's just so unfeasible. It's just not a coherent argument. For both Verity and Sammy, the focus on testosterone levels and physical attributes misses the bigger picture. It's worth noting that all women have testosterone in their system. You know, it's not a male hormone, it's a human hormone. Um, So, you know, and there's certain conditions, you know, you have polycystic ovaries and and have an increase in testosterone. All of creating is this exclusive atmosphere um, that's going to end up hurting way more people than just trans people. There are professional women's rugby players that are six foot four, uh, you know, very well built. And there's also women's rugby players that are professionals that are four foot ten, you know, tiny little slight scrum halves. You know, there's massive variation. I think people have this attitude that, that you know, any old average man could just walk into a uh, you know, high level women's team and, and, and just play and be one of the best players. And it's just not the case. Away from the world of football, regulations around trans inclusion vary greatly. For example, in 2020, World Rugby released updated guidelines ruling that trans women will not be permitted to play women's rugby at a World Cup level because they may jeopardise the safety of cisgender women. Even within different rugby levels and codes, the rules can vary widely. Verity, for instance, raised concerns that the RFU, the Rugby Football Union's policy, is currently out for consultation and they're looking at including a height and weight limit. One of the things with that is it could cause eating disorders for younger people, it could put other people um, off playing rugby, and it's really sad out there because rugby just used to be for everybody. I think it's so interesting because the experiences of people like Verity and Sammy are vital to informing this whole discussion, Mm. clearly, and shaping what the rules and regulations are. I suppose one could be forgiven for having sympathy for the governing bodies who are themselves trying to get to grips with how to make this fair and inclusive, which is is quite a complex issue, actually. It's interesting you bring that up because that kind of takes me to someone I also spoke to. So my name is Madeline Pape. I am an Australian Olympian, former 800-metre runner, and I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Lausanne. So Madeline has a particularly unique take on this because she also raced against Casta Semenya in the 2009 World Championships. 
World champion athlete Casta Semenya says her rights as a woman are being violated. The athlete has faced scrutiny about her gender throughout her career. Castor Semenya is not trans. She's an intersex, cisgender athlete. But her naturally high testosterone levels have brought her intense scrutiny from World Athletics, who have a strict system of sex testing women athletes. Semenya's challenging those regulations in court. Her case has received a huge amount of attention and has really put a spotlight on the topic of regulation around trans, intersex and non-binary athletes in professional sports. When you're the best in the world, People get obsessed, you know, with what you do. And then comes a genetic, <laughs> okay? We all different anyway, in kind of a way, in, you know, in life. How I perform, you know, it draws attention, you know, from people. And then, obviously, such people, they think probably I have a, an advantage. Madeline Pape was there for the controversy. And it's actually one of the reasons that her post-athletics life has revolved around researching sex differences in sport. Well, I came to think that perhaps I might have a unique voice to contribute, but I think how it sort of worked out is that it's ended up being a really steep but, but rewarding learning curve for me in terms of revisiting a lot of my assumptions about sex difference and how it relates to athletic ability and also pushing myself to think about the factors that matter here beyond just questions of science and what testosterone does or doesn't do uh, in the body. So Madeline talks about how it's so easy to fall into the way of thinking that there has to be a difference between men and women. Because otherwise, what's the point in having a separate female category? And I mean, I agree with that. I do agree with that. But the problem is, I suppose, that it's it's not a binary distribution. We don't have women's performances at one end of the, of the continuum and then men's performances at the other. Instead, we have a whole lot of overlap. Even towards the elite level, we're still dealing with a very grey area. Once we realise that we're dealing with a continuum here and not a binary distribution of athletic ability, then it becomes possible to see that Oh, well, yes, of course, amongst women, we do have many exceptional cisgender women athletes. I mean, Casta Semenya is, when, when you break down her performances and, and her degree of um, dominance, if you like, in the women's 800, you look at her margins of, of victory at, for example, the Rio Olympic Games. I mean, she did very, very well at those Olympics. She came away with a gold medal. But if you take Katie Ledecky, for example, in swimming and you look at her margins of victory across multiple events where she won a gold medal, even in her weakest event, actually, she still had a greater margin over her competitors than Semenya did in the 800. And so I mentioned that just to make the point that it's perfectly reasonable and, and normal for us to have um, high-performing women athletes within the female category and that doesn't need to disrupt necessarily the way that we're organising sports competition. Coming up, unravelling the science that governing bodies are basing their regulations on. But first... Hello, I'm Jane Mulkerins, Associate Editor of The Times magazine. By listening in, you make it possible for me to bring you exclusive stories that you won't get anywhere else. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. 
Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. For Madeleine Pape, the scientific justifications for invasive regulation in sport leave a lot to be desired. I mean, I think the safest thing that we could say about the state of the scientific research at the moment is that it's inconclusive and that organisations like World Athletics for the sport of track and field is making its policy decisions independently of the scientific evidence that it has in hand. So we know, for example, that the most recent regulations that apply to middle distance events were applied to events for which World Athletics did not have any evidence of a correlation between testosterone and performance, so the 1500 metres and the mile. And those regulations were not applied to events where there was a correlation, according to World Athletics research. So they, so they found a relationship in the hammer throw and the pole vault to events that do not appear in the current regulations. I think it's misleading to say that it's a scientific issue for that reason because it's it's quite clear that decisions are being made independently of scientific research. World Athletics, the international governing body, were accused last year of targeting women, particularly women from the global south, for, quote, abusive sex testing. The criticism came in a report by Human Rights Watch. On top of this, athletes with higher testosterone levels face the prospect of invasive medical interventions to alter their levels. And if they refuse, exclusion from competition altogether. The women affected have had many parts of their lives destroyed by these regulations and also their health compromised by these regulations in ways that will stay with them you know, for a really long period of time. We're talking things like developing osteoporosis when you're in your 20s. These kinds of things that have come about because of the neglectful way that these regulations have been implemented. Just in the last few weeks, Castor Semenya's lawyers are um, demanding answers really from World Athletics because they are citing a study that they describe as misleading as stopping her competing at the Tokyo Olympics. And the study is now described as exploratory. And I think that probably highlights what you and what Madeline are saying here is that actually when it comes to the research and it comes to the science to try to help Actually, is it just getting in the way? Absolutely. And I think it's a perfect example of how this 
desire to try and reach for science to provide the answers doesn't really get us very far. There's been a real fixation on trying to trying to get the scientific research straight on what's going on in the bodies of trans women and or in the bodies of women with high testosterone, you know, like let's see if, the, you know, we, we recognise that it's a nascent area of scientific research, so let's try to push ahead and see if we can get some conclusive answers to these, you know, presumed problems. But I, I think that there are actually plenty of other questions that would be worthwhile asking and, and keeping in mind. You know, for example, given what we know about the suicide rates and mental health issues and other discrimination-related health issues in trans and gender-diverse populations, what can we learn about how they benefit from sports participation? What can we learn about how sporting clubs change and grow when they foster gender diverse participation what benefits does that bring for women who are involved in in sport the conversation about whether trans athletes particularly trans women have an unfair advantage or pose a risk to cisgendered women in sport is still buzzing around this it's a reductive conversation though according to sammy walker football is about technique positioning, it's about a million things other than aestheticism. Even though aestheticism does play a part, yeah, I think people look at things and they go, oh, you're, you know, if you're bigger or you're, you're stronger or you're faster, then you're automatically going to be better. And I go, well, if you look at players like, I don't know, Lionel Messi or, or you know, any of the, you know, Sam Kerr, you know, any of these players in, in men's and women's football, they're not the best because they're the biggest, they're the best because they are the best at football. You know, I'm not the, the tallest, I'm not the heaviest, I'm not the quickest, I'm not the most skillful woman on my team. In the same way that I wasn't any of those things on any of the male teams I played on either. People have different attributes and that's what makes a team is a, a, a combination of different people's attributes working together to win a game. For a contact sport like rugby, there are real concerns, reflected in World Rugby's total ban of trans women, that inclusion would put the safety of cisgender women at risk because of the, quote, size, force and power-producing advantages conferred by testosterone during puberty and adolescence. I think if they want to be looking at safety, it would have to be at everybody. Here's rugby player Verity Smith again. We've already seen no injuries. Some people have said that, well, you can't be reporting them right because trans people must be injuring people. We know for a fact that if someone, a trans person did injure somebody on the pitch, it would be in the newspapers uh, pretty quickly. Um, and we, we've not seen that. Myself, I'm in a wheelchair now from a bad tackle from someone who's around five foot three as his female. So things do happen. You go out onto the pitch. When it comes to sport, just because you're trans doesn't mean you're any good at the sport. You need coaching, you need training, you need technique. There's so much more that comes with it rather than that. And we need to start looking at the other effects as well that make you good at a sport. People are transitioning. They're not looking at what how the effects of the cross-sex hormones are. They make them more tired. There's issues around muscle fatigue. And all these things are not actually looked at because they're being put against cis men when it comes to the research and assumptions and having a look at that. I suppose then that brings us to what happens now. Where do we go from here? Which is one of my favourite questions ever, to be honest, is what happens next and where do we go from here? Because these conversations, us talking to you, you talking to people like Verity, like Sammy, to gain understanding, to get their experiences. I just wonder what success looks like. What does progress look like in terms of trans people and competing in sport? I guess for me, perhaps it's better 
for me to say kind of the attitude that I was most convinced by, which I think was probably Madeline's sense that regulation is a bit of a quagmire and it kind of leads to dead ends very often than not. And so perhaps it's better to start with inclusion and to see how it plays out. I think obviously there are people who have this fear that including trans women in women's sports, of course, that's the issue that is far more controversial than trans men participating in men's sports. And we see that played out through the media. But actually, when we look at the numbers, trans women have been able to participate in women's sports for decades. They've been allowed to compete in the Olympics for almost 20 years. And we've had our first trans woman competing this year and she came last. It just doesn't stack up in terms of the numbers. For instance, uh, Verity talks about how there's 37,000 women playing rugby um, in England and two of them are trans. So this idea that trans women are going to come in and, and take over the sport and it's going to be kind of opening the floodgates just doesn't seem to be playing out in reality. Flip it on its head. Let's start from inclusion. It's also so interesting, Amelia, because even as you explain it, it just feels so reductive. Do you know what I mean? It's as if, you know, when you, I can just picture the kind of the team sheet going up at the start of a match, you know, on the TV screen, and it's got the name of a player, how many appearances they've had, how many goals they've scored, and how many nanomoles of <laughs> testosterone they've got. Do you know what I mean? It just seems slightly bizarre. Yeah, absolutely. I think the overarching kind of takeaway, I guess, that I got from this was that trans people are just people who want to play sport. And sport is a great unifier, in fact. We recognise, obviously, that these governing bodies are in a difficult position. And I think a lot of that is stemmed from the conversation and the controversy around it. Sport is something that brings so much joy to so many people's lives that surely we want to just support that in any way we can. I think what's really interesting and what's stood out from our conversation, for me, that number that you've just given on rugby players, how many rugby players there are, uh, and how many trans players there are, I think that goes a long way to actually dispelling the concerns, the anger, the controversy, because actually, you know, two out of 37,000, that's not going to break anything, and in fact, why not let two people play sport? I suppose one other part to all of this is what conversations about inclusion, like this one, can do more generally about problems in women's sport. I think that's something that really struck me when I was speaking to Madeleine in particular. So by making women's sport inclusive of trans women, we can kind of make room for conversations about what the remaining inequalities are in sport. Here's Madeline Pape again. I'm not going to say I have all the answers or that I know what this is going to look like in practice, but I think that there is room to have, to see both the advancement of women's sport and the advancement of gender inclusive sport as being mutually beneficial. What I would encourage sports governing bodies to do is to put aside the question of regulation for the moment because that's a quagmire. It has become a quagmire that is polarising and where we don't seem to be making a whole lot of progress. It's just becoming more and more controversial. How about we put that question of regulation to the side and instead try to make room here to have other kinds of conversations about 
questions like what are the remaining inequalities that women are facing in sport? What could sports governing bodies be doing differently to address what we know are the actual problems facing women in sport? Their lesser pay, their more marginal playing opportunities, their absence or underrepresentation in leadership structures, their absence or underrepresentation in coaching roles, their greater exposure to sexual harassment. These we know are real issues facing women in sport. And I don't see that excluding trans women or women with high testosterone does anything to address these actual issues that we know are facing women's sport. There will never be a blanket decision. And here's Sammy Walker. That works for every sport. There's never going to be a blanket decision that works for every trans person who had to go through that process. It's the way that uh, media often frames it. You know, you have people like Ian Thorpe who is, you know, massive, got double jointed, extra flexible uh, ankles, is, you know, has massive feet, so it has, generates more thrust when he swims, has bigger lungs as well, so he can take on more oxygen and all this kind of stuff. And he's celebrated as a, as a, a beacon of athleticism. And then, you know, whenever we see a female athlete succeed and dominate, everyone goes, she might be a man, you know? <laughs> It's just, it's just the way we see it. It's that, it's that disbelief that women can be as good as men at anything. It's just the same recycled arguments we see day in, day out. It's just recycled bigotry at the end of the day that causes these, these attitudes. I've never met somebody who has actually dealt with a trans person within sport who thinks that they have a really unfair advantage. I, I literally had a, a guy on Twitter who... Um, messaged me like added me in a in a comment and said I don't even like them in sports but you shouldn't be playing them and I was like you are <laughs> what you know where is your you know why are you invested in this subject because it yeah. seems like you're invested in this subject because it's an opportunity to to show your bigotry towards people like me like when I was 10 years old I didn't know anybody that was LGBT in sport at all we didn't get dial up till I was 14 you know so I didn't have access to any of these resources I didn't see any of these things so I think that you know for, for me being visible is really important and to show people that you know will are like me that you know you can be trans and you can you can be yourself and you can be authentic and you can still live a fulfilling life and there's just because people say oh that's not for you doesn't mean that it isn't for you because they don't get to make those decisions if one person listens to this and goes, oh, actually, maybe it's not a bigger problem as I think it is. You know, that would be a win for me. You know, the reality is, is that trans people are just normal people who want to have normal, fulfilling lives. And whether that be sport or, or any other pursuit, and actually by policing trans bodies in such an unnecessary way, you know, you're actually harming women's sports by doing so. Thank you so much for listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Kyla MacDonald and our guest today was talk sport journalist Amelia Cox. You also heard from Verity Smith, Sammy Walker and Madeline Pape. The producers were Leona Hamid and Brenna Daldorf. The executive producer today was Asia Fuchs and sound design was by David Crackles. 
If you have a story that you think we should be covering, any ideas for future episodes or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.